Amen. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church, and today we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn, tap your way. If not, please don't panic. We'll have those verses on the screen for you. Okay, let's start off. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question about Bible, and it's, it's something that hopefully you're doing as you're reading Scripture. We're encouraging everybody all the time who's investigating to go to the founding documents of Christianity, go to the actual words from the actual sources, the Bible. It's the best way to see what it is we believe. Of course, always ask. We want to tell you everything, but... It's a great place to go. And also, if you are a Christian, then one of the disciplines of the Christian life is to be studying, understanding, applying God's Word to your heart. It's God's Word to you. Of course, you're going to be studying it and wanting it and want to know about it. And if you actually start doing that, you're going to run into some passages that are hard to understand, that are hard to interpret. Well, this is one of those. At least it was when I first read it, and maybe it just sail right through it, but here's what it says. First Thessalonians chapter 2, it's at the very end of the chapter, it says, For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Take a second to think about how crazy this is. We want to understand first uh, the yous and ours. This is a guy named Paul who's writing with other Christian leaders who helped to plant, start, begin a church in this place called Thessalonica. It was a Greek city in Macedonia, and it's still a Greek city. They just changed the end a little bit. It's called Thessaloniki, fun to say. And in this old town where he started this church, he's writing a letter to these people. And he's saying to the Christians in this town, these things. He's actually saying to them that they are his hope, joy, and crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. The Christian gospel is that God saves us. We don't save ourselves. The Christian gospel is that we don't boast and we can't beat our chests and show our glory because we don't have any. So what could Paul be talking about? Well, I think the best way to understand it is to think of my new puppy. So Rachel and I, we just got a new puppy we got him last Sunday afternoon. He's a little labradoodle. Very, very cute. I don't know. Good authority, though. Cutest puppy in the world. It just is. And he's got this wavy, very brown fur. He's got a little white patch on his chest. And he's got these eyes. Anyway, he's a very cute puppy, and we love him very much. And he, being a dog, is already hardwired to do dog relationship with humans. Meaning, his whole life is built around us saying, good boy, good boy. When we say that, his whole universe explodes with light and joy. And you can tell because they wag their tails when they're happy. And he doesn't just wag his tail. His whole back half slides back and forth on our wood floors because he's so glad when you say to him, you did it. You peed in the grass. Well done. Well done, Chip. His name is Chocolate Chip. 
well done, Chip. And we'll pet him and we say, well done. And his whole life is just perfect. It's heaven. We don't understand as Christians, and part of this is a good thing, but I think it's actually become, we've overdone it and become a bad thing. What it is for God to give us praise. For God to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. For him to pat us on the head and say, good boy. Because the distance between me and Chip compared to the distance between God and me, for that God to say to me, well done. I love you. Well done. I want to bring whatever I can to that table. I want to put as much down in front of that God as possible so that when he looks at it and says, well done, it's as big of a well done as I could possibly get. And the fold of this, the sort of turn of this, is that I'm getting a well done because of what Jesus has done. I am loved and accepted in the gospel that Jesus has made, the the good news that he has paid for my sin, and now God accounts his righteousness as my righteousness. That's where I'm getting the well done from. That's what allows God to love me like he does. So it allows him to look at my little crayon drawings and say, we got to hang it on the wall because he loves me. And... Not earning my salvation, I want to have something to show for the way his love has impacted my life and borne fruit. Paul obviously thought it was a big deal. Not some performance based judgment day because you've failed. If it's performance based, you lose. We're only accepted through Christ, and he is saying that there will be a moment at Christ's coming, because all of Thessalonians has that theme to it. They're thinking about it all the time, the end of the world. They're thinking about Jesus coming back, this judgment moment, this doomsday, at his coming. He's thinking about what he's going to have to show for the love that God gave him. And that love coming through him. That he was soil that has produced fruit. So, let's transition from trying to understand these verses to trying to understand our lives. Where is your fruit? What are you going to present to him? This is not a salvation conversation. Put that down. Instead, it is how God's love impacts us and works through us. When we say yes to him and yes to his kingdom and put it above all things, the best way to understand it is Jesus' teaching. And I think Paul would have been thinking about Jesus' teaching when he wrote those two verses. 
One of the passages I'm thinking about is Luke 19. Jesus is telling this parable after this wonderful thing happens with Zacchaeus and all these people are excited about the gospel and what he's doing. He's moving to Jerusalem and so they're excited about the kingdom of God. It says in verse 11 of Luke 19 that he's going to tell them this parable because they are ready for the kingdom to come and and he's got to help them to see that difference, to see what it is he's doing. And we don't have time in this sermon to address all of that. But he he fixes some of their understanding and he enlightens our understanding with this parable. Jesus says, A nobleman goes to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gives to them ten minas and says, so each of them gets about three months of a day laborer's wage. They get money. He gives each of them the same amount of money, and he says, engage in business until I come. But the citizens of the area hated him, and they sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. But when the nobleman returned, having received the kingdom... He ordered these ten servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done. Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall now have authority over ten cities. The parable goes on, there's a lot to it, but that's not what we're preaching on this morning. We can get, I think, already the principle to understand what Paul was saying and to motivate ourselves. He's saying that God has given you something. Opportunity. Relationship. Gifting. His love and his name. It's yours. He's given it to you. You're not going to lose his love. It's just put on your head. It's, it's your new last name. You've been adopted. It's done. He's given it to you. Now what have you done with it? What have you done with it? If you really have it, how has it changed you? How has it gotten inside of you and built something big? This nobleman leaves a nobleman, a king, but he comes back an emperor. He comes back king over all. Jesus is already king over all. He's the creator of all. But when he comes back, he will no longer allow any rebellion. That phase of creation is over. What will we have to show for that? We're going to have to get to work. And Paul says he obviously believed this thing to be true, that that this actual moment is coming, and he's thrilled to be able to say that this Thessalonian church that he helped to start is one of those things he's going to be holding up in front of Christ one day. And we're going to follow in his footsteps, and we're going to experience the same things he experienced. So let's get ready. We are going to work, and in our working, we are going to experience suffering, temptation, and joy. Big, full, capital J, joy. Let's get into it. Suffering, verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you wasn't in vain. Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in God, our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. What's he talking about with Philippi? Well, as you're reading the letters of the New Testament, the book of Acts, which comes before Romans, 
Acts tells you the history of most of those letters. And in Acts 16 and 17, we get the stories about this Paul guy walking around in Macedonia, talking to people in this place, Philippi, and then in this place, Thessalonica, and then in this place, Berea, and then in this place, Athens. You may have heard of some of those places. You should have heard of Athens. If you haven't heard of Athens, let's talk. You should have heard of some of those places. And as he's going to these places, he's planting churches. He's starting churches. And the enemy is running against him. There's suffering that's coming against him. He talks about Philippi, which he was in right before coming to Thessalonica. And in Philippi, he goes and he's sharing. And people are understanding the gospel of God. And they're coming. And they're becoming Christians. And he's got this movement that's going. And how exciting and wonderful. He's having his ministry blessed. That's what we're hoping for all the time, right? And there's this slave girl who has a demon. She can tell the future. She tells people's uh, fortunes because she has a demon. And she follows around Paul and Silas and these other guys, and she's shouting out all the time, Behold, the speakers, the, the representatives of the true God. And apparently she would do it whenever he would start talking because it got super irritating to the point that Paul had to just cast out the demon. Now you would think, and I'm saying that in a silly way, hopefully it was like an exciting thing and the demon left and everybody should have been excited except for the owners of the girl, but it may have just been that he was irritated. He's the Apostle Paul. His girl was irritating him, and he just said, okay, demon, we're done. We're done. You're out. Bye-bye. Okay. And then he continued preaching. But that girl had been making a lot of money with her fortune-telling for whoever it was that owned her, And so they drag Paul in front of the city authorities. Paul and his boy Silas, they drug out in front of the magistrates. And in a rage, the crowd that's around them strip them naked, beat them with rods, and then throw them in prison. No trial. And he's saying to them, you remember that? That happened right before we got to Thessalonica where the same sort of thing happened. And then went to Berea where the same sort of thing happened. What I'm telling you is that God is saying in these verses that this is your model for ministry. Your model for doing the things that he's commanded us to do, that he's gifted and blessed us to do. Given us the opportunity to attempt to do. Will be marked by suffering. I don't know if there will be a day when you're serving at Hope Church that somebody comes in, grabs you, drags you down to City Hall in Sandy, strips you literally naked, and then beats you with broomsticks and car antennas until you bleed and throws you in jail without a trial. By God's grace, we live in a place that may not happen. But if it does, it won't be unexpected. If anything like that happens, it shouldn't be surprising. We should expect to work and suffer. How do we continue to work even with suffering? In this parable, Jesus talks about the citizens who hated the noblemen. In Thessalonica, it was the Jewish synagogue and the leaders of the people of God, God's people, it's who the Jews were who actually incited all this stuff against Paul and his followers? Philippi was a little different. Thessalonica, though, it was the the Jewish leaders. 
So much so that Paul even talks about how the people in Thessalonica have endured the same persecution from the same Jewish believers, should be believers in God, God people, but, but when they actually encounter the gospel, instead of receiving it, they reject it and reject it violently, as have rejected violently the message all the way back. It calls to mind in the book of Acts, this guy Stephen, who would have been the first martyr within Christianity, one of Jesus' first followers, the crowds, everybody's, there's thousands of people coming to Christ all the time, the disciples, Jesus' 12, 11, 12, are out there and they're preaching and talking and wonderful stuff and they get the deacons together to go fix some problems that are going on and the deacons were these guys who were very filled with the Spirit and one of them in particular, Stephen, gets drug out and before he's stoned, he gives a speech. And in the speech, he tells the history of the people of Israel and he shows how the hard heart of man, even the Israelites, reject God over and over and over again such that they even kill and beat the prophets that God sends them. So much so that they even killed and beat Jesus himself. In a lack of time, in the same way, they're doing this to Stephen. How do we continue with that kind of suffering? How do we continue when the work just ends? Well, Hebrews, which is a book in the New Testament written to people who are suffering. Believe it or not, most of the New Testament is written to people who are suffering. But Hebrews says it this way. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For God who promised is faithful. How do I know that it's going to be okay? God who promised is faithful. So I'm going to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. That's what this whole sermon is. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is coming. How do we keep moving in suffering? Well, God is faithful, and He can bring fruit even out of that suffering. Very in specific for me to pick the story of Stephen because this guy, Stephen, is being killed and the guy who's holding the coats for all the stoners, no, not uh, stoners, but, but the, people, the people who are throwing stones to kill Stephen, I don't know what the technical term for people who assassinate with stones is, but those people's coats were being held by one Paul. Meaning, the guys who killed Stephen are the guys who wrote the New Testament. <laughs> he brought fruit out of their suffering. Can he do it in your life? <laughs> of course! Of course! This wolf that is circling, trying to steal and, steal and ravage the sheep. I, I used the wrong word there when I said still instead of steal. Um, I'm my accent comes out. My daughter the other day, I said, yeah, you can hold him, talking about the dog. And she looked at me and went, hold? You mean hold him? She's four, so I don't know. Uh, the, the wolf that was going around trying to steal the sheep is converted. <laughs> and God turns him into a stunningly effective sheepdog, taking, monitoring, pastoring the sheep of God. It's going to come with suffering. 
and it's going to come with temptation. He talks here about the motives of the laborers who are planting these churches. And I think we need to reflect on them and think about our motives as we go about doing the labor that he calls us to. Because if the enemy can't beat you down with suffering from the outside, and he'll do both at the same time, he's going to try and suck out the strength from your inside through temptation. Look at verses 3 through 8. For we appeal, uh, our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God's our witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. He is giving you two options. You can go about from love in order to share love with the world. You can do it out of love. Or you can do it with God's love, but instead choosing pride. Instead choosing to seek the glory that comes from man. In other places, Paul talks about these false teachers that come in after him and screw up the work as people pleasers. He's clearly defending himself against that um, accusation. And when I hear the term people pleaser, it doesn't sound all that nefarious to me. You tell me that, that Sue is a people pleaser? I kind of feel bad for her. I I generally don't like, oh, we're going to watch my back around Sue. (laughs) She's going to make two pots of coffee. You know, like what, what is it about being a people pleaser that's so nefarious that we need to watch out for them? Well, a people pleaser, we're not going to be judgmental. We're loving. We're going to help these people to see that, that, that they can only be happy if they're happy in God. But a people pleaser says, I will be glorified by other people's approval. And a people pleaser and a teacher comes up and says, I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. And do you know what the fruit of that kind of ministry is? Do you know what the thorns that are produced from that kind of ministry is? Well, it's a cult. 1981, psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton wrote an article on cult formation where he identified three characteristics associated with cults. One, you have a charismatic leader who gets everybody excited about a group of things, general principles that they all wanted to hear or agree in. And then, though that group was originally sustained by those principles, the principles lose power and the leader becomes the group's source of power and authority. So at first, everybody liked him because of what he said. Then what he said didn't really pan out, so they just had to instead like him. Eventually, a process of indoctrination or education involves coercive persuasion or thought reform leading to economic, sexual, and other exploitation of group members by the leader and the ruling coterie. That's exactly what wolves come to do to Christ's church. It's what they did in the New Testament. It's what they've done in the millennia since then. It is what they are doing today. If you don't like some of the things I tell you, 
great. That's a good thing. If you only ever thought what I said was great, we might have a problem. This is what's supposed to happen. Instead of working from pride to be a people pleaser, we work from love, giving of ourselves like a mother. Exhorting, encouraging, leading, and showing example like a father. Those are the two terms Paul uses for himself. He's, he's two metaphors for his ministry. is like a mother, like a father. And so, all of this comes together, and we thank God constantly for this. Verses 13, verse 13, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Yes, you're going to have suffering. You definitely will have temptation. But in pursuing this life of trying to glorify God and build his kingdom, you will have joy. Capital J, joy. Paul talks about it. He's always worried about all this stuff that's going to come and take the churches and kill their health, but he's also so thankful for them. He's so happy that God has given some fruit. And as we are faithful, in love, if we are faithful to go about doing what he has called us to do, whether you see it or whether you don't, there will be fruit. How? Because he's faithful. We hope in a faithful God. You go about doing stuff his way, for his glory, confident in his love, you're going to have joy. You're going to have joy if you don't get any fruit because everybody around you will go from being your competition and your enemy to somebody you love like your child, like your father or your mother. You don't like your mom, dad? Okay. Like, a, like you love, I don't know, me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you, like you love somebody that you really love. All of a sudden, the world is filled with love, love, love that multiplies, grows, fruit. You plant and your seeds are going out all the time. All this seed is going out all the time. And there's nothing coming back. But every now and again, one starts to go. Oh, and your whole world is so excited because those minas that he gave you are increasing. <laughs> and one day, you're going to get the good and faithful servant. You're going to get it. You're going to get it in Christ. But golly, you're going to get it as you give and sacrifice and bleed in love. See, Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. He's washing people's feet. God over everything descended to be born. Incarnation. God incarnate descended to be a servant. He washed the feet of the disciples. As if that wasn't low enough, he descended even to death. He's a servant, humbling himself, giving his life as a ransom for many. You and I are going to be like puppies. Sweet but ineffective. And yet, he's going to love you so much 
and end up doing through you so much more than you ever asked or imagined. As you just keep putting one foot in front of the other in love, showing his love to the world around you. Are you ready to do that? Hope Church exists to equip you to do that. Make disciples, plant churches. We exist to do that. So engage. Come back next week. Spend time in your word. Uh, Engage with people at Hope Church. Start to build relationships. That Hebrew passage about how God's faithful, it also is telling you not to give up on meeting together because you're stirring up one another to love and good works. I need you. And biblically, you need me. And together, we're going to see something big. (laughs) See something big. Let's pray that we do. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we trust that you're faithful. We trust that we can know not only that you're faithful, but that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And your name is going to be glorified. And your word does not return void. You're good. And so we pray right now, Father, that you would take away all the sin that's entangling and that hinders that you take away all the distraction and you would teach us to run, to run with joy, to run with purpose, the race that you've set before us, to do the good works you've laid out for us to do in Christ Jesus. And not so that we can boast before you as though we're greater than you, but so we can just bring the ball back like a little puppy playing fetch. Just bring the ball back, absolutely thrilled to pieces, that we know you and that you love us. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.